I spent a lot of my early Christian life, not like it was an ongoing thing, but it was sort of a repetitive thing. I spent a lot of time waiting on Pentecost. <laughs> not that Pentecost hadn't come, right? But, but the teaching that I was reading and the things that I was uh, hearing was that I should expect the same pattern as we saw in Acts chapter 2 and as we've seen in other more minor episodes of Pentecost through the book of Acts, that that should be a pattern for all believers that when we come to faith and receive the Holy Spirit and are, are what, have the baptism of the Spirit, that we should uh, have those same signs accompany, right? Preach, speak in tongues, Lord. Uh, Mighty rushing wind, speak in tongues, all of that kind of stuff. And so I spent a lot of time seeking that. I spent a lot of time as though maybe I was a Christian, but I didn't have the baptism of the Spirit. I didn't really know how to get it. I wanted it. I wanted all the power God had for me. Um, so I waited. And I expected. And, and I would fast a little. I would, I would pray. I would try to confess and forsake every sin. Still no wind. No tongues. No fire. I was working and striving. But I wasn't rightly interpreting and applying God's word. I wasn't trusting the truth of God's word. That I had the same power in me that raised Christ from the dead when I came to faith in Him. That the Spirit indwells every believer. And that the Spirit has been poured out in mass upon God's church. You don't cash in what you don't know you have. You don't cash a check on an account that you don't know is full of money. So I was seeking what I already had and I was looking to experience to confirm that in a lot of ways. Not, maybe not in a truth way because I never was baptized by John. But what you see in this text, I, uh, functionally, practically, I had like for a while only been baptized with the baptism of John. I, I, I didn't think I had the fullness of the Spirit. And see, today as we look in this text, and there's probably a better title for it, but I called it the fourth Pentecost. But as we look into this text, we're going to see some believers who are sort of part of the way. Not the whole way. And they, unlike me, they truly are in a time of transition. And God is making some things plain during this time of transition. And we'll try to bring that out. But as we've seen, we've seen one missionary journey. We've seen a lot of souls saved and churches planted. We've seen another second missionary journey with those churches strengthened and other churches planted and souls saved. And now we're seeing a third missionary journey. And it's, it's, it's really interesting how it starts and how it kicks off in, uh, in Ephesus. But um, what I want you to take away as we, as we look at this text and as we talk a little bit about applying it, as we think and talk about the Holy Spirit, um, I want you to take this away. Don't wait for a new Pentecost. It's already happened in the history of redemption, in the plan of God and in the fulfillment in Jesus. His Spirit has been poured out on His whole church. So don't wait for a new Pentecost or a personal Pentecost. Wait for, I mean, walk by faith in the power of the Spirit today. If you know Christ, you have the Spirit. And as you walk with Christ, you'll, you'll experience power to love and serve Him. What we call filling of the Spirit. Hopefully we'll make some of those things plain as we move forward. But first, look at this interesting character, Apollos, in verse 24. I said Paul is, Paul is it's interesting that Paul is on his way to Ephesus and it, and, it, and it snaps over and shows us something that's going on in Ephesus before Paul gets there. It's kind of important to what happens when he, when he does get there. But in verse 24, it's, it tells us about an impressive dude, right? Apollos and the baptism of John is the first point. Verse 24 to 28. But look at this guy. As it describes him, few people are described with such impressive um, terms, right? It says this about Apollos. Uh, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, 
came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So the scene shifts to this guy Apollos in, in this town of Ephesus that we saw Paul sort of briefly touch on, say he would come back and there's going to be an important church. You'll see the, the, um, the epistle to the Ephesians in your New Testament. You'll see Apollos mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but Apollos is only mentioned here in the book of Acts at the end of, 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 verse, uh, of chapter 18 and in 19.1. But it says a few things about Apollos that are very interesting. First, he's a native of Alexandria in Egypt. This is one of the largest cities in the empire. It's, it's, it has a large Jewish population in the city. Uh, it was known as an educational center, uh, a place where you could go and learn a lot of stuff and philosophy. The Jewish philosopher Philo uh, was, was from there. So it, he was, it says that he, he comes from this place of higher learning he he comes from a college town and he's been well educated it says he's eloquent he was an eloquent man he was a well-educated gifted speaker he spoke well he had gifts in this area and it's not just eloquent it says he was competent in the scriptures Apollos knew his Old Testament. He knew it well. Right? So he's a man of the Scriptures. He's a man of... He's been educated. He's, he, in our day, I guess he would have letters after his name. I don't know how many. But he's a smart guy. He's a blessed guy in that way. He's eloquent and competent. And he understood the Old Testament and its promises of a Messiah. And it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. From the Old Testament, as we'll see, up to a certain point, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. You know, literally that means boiling in spirit. <laughs> he was enthusiastic. He was eager. We might use the terminology these days. Apollos was on fire. For God. He couldn't wait to talk to people about what he knew about the Lord. He loved to speak about the Messiah. And the Messiah being Jesus. It says in verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogues in Ephesus. Impressive. This is an impressive guy. Quite a list. Of description. But there's only there's one problem. There's a problem. And it's pointed out right there at the end of verse 25. It says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He only knew the baptism of John. He only knew the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet, Jesus said. The forerunner, the one that Isaiah said one was coming who would be a voice in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord, who would prepare the way for Messiah, the, who, the one who would lead His people out of exile. And even, you know, in that day, the Jews were back in their own land, but they were still under the thumb. And the true exile was, was exile and captivity and sin. And, and this Messiah would come and lead His people out. And John is the one crying in the wilderness in fulfillment of Isaiah. He was the Elijah to come. He was the one setting the stage. And He did baptize. And He baptized many. I mean, the Pharisees stood back in judgment. They stood back in judgment. But John's baptism was... A prophetic baptism. It was, a, it was incomplete in and of itself. It too being the capstone sort of, of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament pointed forward to the one to come. It wasn't the stop. It wasn't the end of the line. Jesus is the end of the line. 
So John's ministry and baptism was temporary. It was transitional. It pointed to the Messiah and the true deliverer to come. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But there was, that, see, this is sort of gently bringing up an insufficiency. Although it, all these glowing terms have been used about Apollos, we're, we're now touching on a weakness. We're touching on something that needs to be addressed. And if there was just somebody there who could help him with that, Look at that. He's speaking in the synagogue in verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila. We can say it this way. Priscilla and Aquila bring him up to date. They get him past John the Baptist. They bring him up to date. So it says in verse 26, he began speak to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they hear him and, and, and they say, yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh. But there's more. There's more that you don't know. There's more that you need to know. And Priscilla and Aquila, it says this. Now watch how graciously they do this. They didn't call him down in the middle of the synagogue. Right? They waited and they talked to him privately. It says that in verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Don't you want more information than that? When you read that? Don't you want to hear that conversation? But it just simply says, they explain to him the way of God more accurately. The verb there means to fill someone in on something. To bring, there was something he needed to be filled in on. There were, there were more details and there were necessary details that if he was going to be what his gifts were, were pointing to and, and if he was going to be a faithful herald of Jesus, there's some more information that needs to go into his life, heart, and, and into his preaching. So they bring him up to date. And, and really, not quite sure what all he didn't know. That's why I say I wish we had more information. We can speculate. Maybe he, he, he knew about John pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah who came. And maybe he didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He certainly didn't know about Christ's baptism that he gave to the church. The sign of union with Christ. And through faith and repentance in Christ that the Spirit would be given to the entire church. We see that in Acts 2. But it says they brought him up to date on what was lacking and in bringing him on up through death, burial, resurrection. Kind of, he, he, he's, he, he looks like a great picture of an Old Testament believer. Or even the disciples themselves before, you know, during following Christ around, but before Pentecost and the resurrection and all of that. But one thing I want to point out is, is that he now understands, after this encounter with Priscilla and Aquila, he now understands better than before the benefits of Jesus' salvation, especially as it relates to the outpouring of the Spirit or the anointing of the Spirit on the entire church. He knows about the full benefits. He, he's, they've shown him the transitional nature of John's baptism and the fulfillment in Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit in the church. And one thing I wanted to point out right here, and young people, old people, but young people listen to me as well. What, is, what do you see in Apollos right here? I mean, think about an educated, gifted man who's speaking before people and people maybe who are tent makers and don't have those letters behind their name come up to him and point out a weakness. There's not one word about him resisting Priscilla and Aquila. There's not one word about him flaunting his credentials or anything like that. One word about Apollos, which, which should be characteristic of every servant of God, and especially those who are going to be teaching and preaching, is teachable. You must be teachable. You can't learn if you're not teachable. Kids, you can't learn if you're not teachable. Young people, you get to a place where you think you don't need to be teachable anymore. You're just beginning to need to learn. But notice, Apollos was teachable. He was humble. 
It doesn't say so in that first description, but the outcome of it proves it. Because if you're a doctor in the university or whatever, and tent makers or a carpenter or somebody like that comes up and says, that was pretty good, but there's some more stuff you need to know, really important stuff, and he receives it, man, that's humility, which is rare in lettered people. That's teachability. I mean, I had one guy I went to seminary with that never exhibited this the whole way through. And after he gave his senior sermon, he was broiled in front of all of us because he was unteachable. And was, a couple of us talked to him after we said, brother, if you're going into the ministry, you have to have humility and teachability. And that's what those men are trying to point out to you. The great Apollos learned from tent makers more accurately the truth of Jesus and the gospel. Now watch what happens. Remember, Paul's on the way. Apollos is there. He's been preaching and teaching and sharing. Don't know for how long, right? Before, before he leaves. But it says this in verse 27. And when he, he wished to cross to Achaia, he's caught the same bug Paul's got. He wants to go out in ministry and minister. Says when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So he gets a letter of recommendation and goes into Achaia. Really, he goes to Corinth with a letter of recommendation. How much would a letter of recommendation to Corinth from Priscilla and Aquila mean? And their, their work there and their time there. It would mean a lot. And so he goes with a letter of recommendation from the brethren in Ephesus, and it says when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He knows, as some of you young people won't know what I'm talking about, but some of the rest of us will, Paul Harvey. He, know, he now knows the rest of the story. And he's able to go and take that, that gospel reality and share it and teach it and equip people in Corinth. And so it says he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, the one that all of the Old Testament is about, has come and it is Jesus. And he proved that from the Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah 53 and, you know, start with Genesis and go forward. Uh, Road to Emmaus is a series I did on that if you want to hear some of those, those places in the Old Testament. But the whole scripture was about Jesus and he had come and he was greatly helping those. Notice it says who had through grace believed. God's grace had come into their life, Ephesians 2, so that even though they were dead in trespasses and sins, they had been raised with Christ. They'd been brought to faith. God had birthed children there. We saw it already in Corinth. But it was grace that was the foundation and source of that. Faith and repentance are a gift of God that he works through the preaching of the gospel to grant us new life, being born again in faith and repentance in Christ, and on we go. Through grace they had believed, and they were powerfully helped by this lettered man who had been instructed by some tent makers as to the deficiency of his faith and what he needed. So Apollos has taught there, he's been, and he's been taught there. He's been better equipped, and he's moved on to Corinth, and he's a blessing there. Now look, second point. Disciples are found in Corinth, in Ephesus, by Paul. Look what it says in, in 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos is over here. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So Paul passed through, he went up through uh, Iconium and Derby and all those places that we've seen before. And instead of being told he couldn't go into Asia, now it's okay. He goes straight in, fulfilling his promise that if the Lord willed, he would come back to Ephesus. And he's reunited with Priscilla and Aquila, and I'm sure that was a, a happy event. Apollos has gone on to Corinth, and they'll tell him about him. But it says this, Paul passed through the Indian country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, 
Now watch. It's interesting. They're disciples. And a lot of people, they're disciples of John. Some say they're unbelievers. Some say they're believers. But it seems that the text is, is kind of hinting at uh, some knowledge and faith in Jesus because of what Paul asks. But, it, you know, where he starts at, he doesn't start with, no, John, but here's Jesus. He starts asking them about the Holy Spirit. It says, Paul found some disciples and he said to them, "Did look at the pointed question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They know the truth, but not completely. They're like Apollos. It's interesting. Were these people, were these Gentiles taught by Apollos while he was in Ephesus before the encounter with Priscilla and Aquila so that that incomplete knowledge he had was shared with these people. We don't know. We're not told. Just just a maybe. Who knows? But Paul's there in Ephesus now. He finds what it says, disciples, disciples of John, disciples of Jesus. It seems that they had at least believed. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed. Now watch what they say. Point one. John taught about the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist. You know the whole Old Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit. He's there starting in Genesis 1. But watch what they say. And one of the reasons that think, you know, clearly Gentiles. It says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We don't know anything about what you're talking about. We haven't heard that there's a spirit at all. And Paul says to them, into what then were you baptized? Now here's the connection, and this is why I'm looking at both sets of these pieces of Scripture together. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So here we go again. Different person is Paul now instead of Priscilla and Aquila, but he's running to this band of brothers who is part way home. Stuck in the end of the Old Testament age. Another situation of transition here. They've believed. What have they believed? Jesus is the Messiah. But they, they don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't know about His coming. They need to have, like Priscilla and Aquila did for Apollos, they need to have the way of God explained more accurately to them. So look what, this is really short, what we have here. But look what Paul says in verse 4. He explains to them John's baptism briefly is what we have. Paul said this, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. John baptism. His baptism was all about preparation. His was a baptism of repentance. It was a a washing. Right? There were lots of ritual washings. And he's calling Jews and everyone to, to be baptized. But the point of John's baptism wasn't to draw and keep disciples unto himself. It was to point to the one to come whom John said, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave for him. But Paul says John's purpose in John's baptism was to call people to to turn and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And Paul ends up, I mean, John ends up identifying Jesus as that Messiah. So John's baptism was a forerunner to Jesus' baptism like John was a forerunner or, uh, to Jesus. So being baptized by John demonstrated a recognition of one's sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to return to living for God in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. John said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He, now watch this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Both blessing and judgment there. Fires of judgment, 
Blessing and pouring out of the Spirit. He, this coming one, the Messiah, will baptize His church with the Holy Spirit, which is what happened in Acts 2. And we have a day of Pentecost and what they are evidently unaware of. They're at least unaware of that. So with John's baptism, a person repented of sin, was therefore ready to place his faith in Christ the Messiah. It foreshadowed what Jesus would accomplish, much as the Old Testament did. So Paul says to them about John's baptism, this is what it was, but it was meant to point to Jesus. And there's more information here. And it says, on hearing this, they were baptized I, when I read the text, I said into. I believe that's how it should be. There's no, there's no contradiction between being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus said to do at the end of Matthew. And being when you see baptized in the name of Jesus in Acts. Little preposition, very important. Baptized into the name of Jesus. Right? As a follower of Jesus by being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so they were baptized. They were brought into through baptism that, that relationship and that church there. And it said when Paul had let... Now watch this. This is interesting. And this had caused me a lot of confusion early on in my days. I was expecting kind of the same sort of first work, second work paradigm. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus by Paul in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just expanding there for you in case that confuses you. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, this is the only time we have this kind of report about Paul, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. This is a mini Pentecost. There's not just one Pentecost in the book of Acts. There's one major one in Acts 2. But then you have, remember the Samaritans? The same sort of thing happens in Acts 8. Remember the God-fearing Gentiles? The same sort of thing happens, Cornelius and his household in chapter 10. And now these Gentile disciples in Ephesus... Paul, God is making clear that he's bringing all peoples together through the ministry of the apostles. So he's verifying apostles when this happened, the message, the gospel, and that the church now, the gospel is going not just to the Jews, but to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember, it doesn't always happen this way in the book of Acts either. What happened in Cornelius' house? While Paul was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They began prophesying and speaking in tongues. And then they were baptized with the water. Showing that it's not the baptism with the water that buys or gets you. The baptism with water pictures immersion into Christ and, and union with Christ. And we get everything we're co-heirs with Christ and everything He has purchased for us. What you see in the book of Acts in these few times is not meant to be a pattern for all times any more than the cross was. Every time We don't have to crucify Jesus again every time somebody comes to faith, right? Pentecost is the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus where He's pouring out His Spirit upon His church. And we see many Pentecosts happen as we go through the book of Acts. By the way, this is the last time things like this are mentioned in the book of Acts. Confirming the apostles, confirming the message, confirming the church, confirming the reality that God has in His Son now anointed His entire church for service. See, it's not that the Old Testament was, I mean, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit wasn't active in the Old Testament. Certainly, anybody, anytime anybody's coming to faith, it's the same work, even with Abraham, when he trusted and he was justified. So the Holy Spirit's been regenerating, illuminating, even indwelling, but not bab, not filling, not that anointing. In the Old Testament, the, there were only three anointed offices. Prophet, priest, and king. There were three anointed offices. God And Moses had said, oh, that God would put His Spirit on all of His people, that all would be prophets. That's what fulfilled in Jesus, and that's what we see in a glimpse of here being made clear to the Ephesians. You know, the Gentiles in Ephesus of what is going on. 
And, and look, this is the only time we have this kind of thing said about Paul, that uh, the Spirit came upon them by him laying his hands on. So it's, it's, it's confirming him. But they were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there was about 12 of them. Taking us back to Acts 2. And if you want to go, there's a, the whole sermon about Pentecost in Acts 2. You can find that on the website, Acts 8. Um, Acts 10, and now here. But this was not a pattern for all time, and this is not what happens in the life of every believer. So we see Apollos knowing the truth up to a certain point, being straightened out about that truth, being teachable and going on and growing and being fruitful. And it says when he went to Corinth, he was powerfully powerfully power of the holy spirit he was powerfully refuting those who opposed and then you see these these uh, ephesian disciples who hadn't even heard of a holy spirit now brought up to date in jesus and hearing about uh, whatever they were missing death burial resurrection and the outpouring of the spirit and as i and as i read this and thought about this and how much how many things i could do with this I thought about it might be fruitful just for us to think about you and I and the baptism of John as we end. See, Apollos and these 12 disciples were filled in on the gospel and the gift of the Spirit. They were living fully in the new covenant age now. They're forgiven and empowered and they know it. Their deficient or insufficient understanding has been corrected. What about us? What about you? Let me ask you a question. Are you living in the fullness of what God, what Christ has purchased for you? Is your salvation a Trinitarian salvation? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, people abuse the doctrine of the Holy Spirit so much and that we're almost afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. But we can't run off the reservation in the other direction. You have, let me, if you're believing, are you trusting in Christ this morning for your salvation? If you're trusting in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul said there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So let's start there. When you came to faith in Jesus, let me put it this way, we are post-Pentecost. We are way post-Pentecost. When you come to faith in Jesus, you get the entire package. You get the full package of salvation. You're not missing anything. Gosh, there's so many rabbits to chase. <sighs> you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you from the start as a Christian. Just one verse, or two verses, one place. Ephesians 1, 13-14. Now watch this. In Him, Jesus, in Him you also... Notice these are the Ephesian believers where Paul was and where Apollos had left from. In Him you also, when, notice the word when, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So something happened when you heard and believed. Now watch. God put His seal on you. What is His seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Seal of ownership. When you heard the word of the gospel and you believed in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. So that's just one verse. Romans 8 here, there are others to show um, even in the gospels that when you come to faith in Jesus, you receive all of the Spirit. You know, we talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts, right? You know how He does that? Through the Spirit. We've come to be indwelt by the Spirit, therefore indwelt by the Christ, therefore indwelt by God. We have a Trinitarian salvation and none is left out. So if you are a Christian, the Spirit is in you. You know how you know the Spirit is in you? Fruit of the Spirit. That too is in the book of Ephesians, by the way. The all-encompassing sign of having the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues and prophesying and doing all those things. Although those were used as clear and evident outward signs, language signs. I mean, 
everybody in Acts 2 heard them speaking the gospel in their own language. Miracle of hearing as much as speaking. But what I want you to get and embrace, because see, you won't walk in the Spirit if you don't think you have the Holy Spirit. But if you're believing in Jesus, the Spirit lives in you. And He doesn't come and go. When you're good, think about how much better parent God is than, than we are. Every time your kids are bad, do you leave? Alright, I'm checking out. Forget it. When you can be good, I'll come back. We need to talk if that's how you're raising your children. Yes, I'm saying that's wrong. God doesn't do that with His children. He doesn't abandon us until we're good. You know what? We'd never be good if He wasn't working in our hearts by grace. But from Ephesians 1, you see that coming to faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And yet, in chapter 5, there's an interesting command. In chapter 5, 18, it says this, And do not get drunk with wine. Listen, I'll stop. Full stop. Not a sin to have a glass of wine. It's a sin to have four or however many it takes you to get drunk. Wine is a good gift used responsibly. Some of us can't handle it. We've been alcoholics. We don't want to tempt you with that. Leave it alone. I mean, fried chicken's a good gift, but eating 14 chickens is gluttony. That's a sin. Didn't know that? It doesn't say don't drink wine. That's what I'm pointing out. And don't judge people. If you see somebody buying a, a, a six-pack of beer at the grocery store, no, I can't believe that person was buying beer. Well, they might be putting it on their grass. Cindy has a formula where we spray it on the grass and beer's part of it. But how do you know they won't have one and use it responsibly? No, no sin in drinking a beer. No sin in having a glass of wine. No sin in eating a leg of chicken. As long as you don't go overboard. Drunkenness is the sin. Why? Because of what it dishonors God and it produces really sinful, funky stuff in your life. Look what it says. Do not get drunk with wine. So this is the negative. This is an analogy being drawn. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. It leads to debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, all of that. But, but I want you to notice there's a command here. I'm telling you, you received the Spirit, chapter 1, when you were saved, and that this is telling you to be filled with the Spirit. Is that a contradiction? No, because they're not the same thing. Indwelling and filling are two different things. And you know what language it uses in Acts 2? When we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, it says they were all filled with the Spirit. They already knew Jesus. They were filled. And filling is something that happens over and over. But this command is an interesting command. When it says be filled with the Spirit, it is a present passive command. Be being filled. You're not filling yourself. You're not causing it to happen. Be being empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be being equipped empowered and controlled so that your life bears the fruit of the Spirit, which he talks about in Galatians and other places. Be filled. Be continually. You could say it this way. Be continually being filled by the Spirit. And the question, isn't it, is how? Isn't that the question? Because I want to know that I have the Holy Spirit living within me. I want to not be walking around as though I've just had the baptism of John. I want to know who I am in Christ. And I want to know that the Spirit lives in, within me. And I want Him to use me for His glory. And he says, he says, you have Him, now be filled with Him. And yes, it's a Him. Oh, Jeff, don't chase that rabbit right now. That's Greek, okay? Um... Never mind. I don't mean to distract you. That stuff makes me tired though. Um, do not get drunk with wine for it's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled. Be empowered. How do I do that? By wailing and fasting and praying and trying to be good enough so that God will use me? Mm -mm. By believing the Gospel. Sure, taking God seriously. Sure, I don't want to be 
walking in sin. That's not the way to be filled. But I don't have to be perfect either. It's what's purchased for me. So the way that I am filled is through trust and dependence. I'm going to try to break this out a little bit more. And I know I'm a little going past what was here in the text, but it touched something that I want, I want to be sure we're clear about. You trust that the Spirit indwells you and will empower you to live for Christ. As a Christian, when God calls us to a duty or to forsake something, don't let the first, or maybe let the first thought be, I can't do that. But don't stop there. Because He can. And He will empower. If He's calling me to it, He will empower me to do it. So trust that the Spirit indwells you and that He will empower you. We know all the facts of the gospel and its benefits. We just need to rightly apply them. The filling of the Spirit is not something that's, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that is always evidence with speaking in tongues and all of that. Because if you go read chapter 4 of Acts, when the, uh, Peter and John are arrested, they're threatened not to preach the gospel, what do they immediately do? They go to a prayer meeting and pray for God to empower them and keep them and help them to keep speaking with boldness. And in Acts 4.31 it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God. So the evidence of being filled with the Spirit there was speaking the Word with boldness. You see that? So let's let me use Paul's question from 19.2. Let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's weak, but yes, you did. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God, who's part of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Equal in power and glory. We receive them all when we trust in Christ, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Yes. Okay, now, here's the, the better question. Are you continually trusting through prayer for the Spirit to empower you according to the Word to live and grow in Jesus? See, this is what I'm getting at. Many of us live like the, the answer is no. I didn't receive the Holy Spirit because I don't think about Him. I'm not trusting in Him. I'm not praying for Him to empower me and help me. And so I'm a functional disciple of John when I do that. Are you continually trusting through prayer for the Spirit to empower you according to His Word? The Spirit doesn't work apart from the Word. The Word is complete. Nobody's receiving a new Word Authoritative word from God today. I know they claim to. It's a denial of solar scripture. <sighs> but we ignore the spirit. That's what we do. We don't depend on the spirit. We don't pray for. And I'm just saying this. Maybe you do. But in general we don't pray for being empowered by the spirit. Do we? Do you? Every day? I hope you all nod your head yes, and it's true. But see, I didn't. I, early in my Christian life, I, mean, I knew a little bit about the Spirit, and I thought I was supposed to have Him, but people were teaching me I needed this second work of grace, and I was moaning and doing everything I could do to get it, and the signs wasn't coming, so I didn't think I had it. When all the while the Spirit was indwelling me and wooing and calling to me, I'm here. If I just had read and believed the Word and rightly interpreted it. Not taking what was happening in a time of transition, but letting didactic or teaching passages interpret these and show me how they fit. That's why I can go to Ephesians and say, yes, I received the Holy Spirit. Now I'm supposed to be filled with Him. But see, our default setting is not praying for the power of the Spirit. Do you pray for the power of the Spirit to help you walk with Jesus? If you don't start today, and then here's the key. Don't look for a feeling. I prayed for the filling of the Spirit. Nothing's shaking. Nothing's talking. I didn't get it. No, you have it. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for and trust 
Him to empower you. That sin you're struggling with, are you bringing the power of the Spirit into the picture? You pray to the Father in the name of the Son, by the Holy Spirit, for the filling of the Spirit, and you trust for it, and you step out and strive, making every effort, Peter says, to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. And that's where he empowers. That's what happened to the disciples in Acts 4. They were speaking boldly. They were purposing to continue to speak boldly. They said, help, and God filled them. They didn't pray for the filling of the Spirit in those words, but God filled them with the Spirit to empower their faithfulness. And I don't know if any of this is making much sense to you. I want to share one thing with you, and I'm, I'm done. But one thing that helped me, this is something I do every Sunday before I preach. And John Piper, you ever heard, have you heard of APTAT? APTAT, acronym. I'll explain it to you. But John Piper's acronym, APTAT, gives practical steps for walking in God's power whenever you open your Bible. Notice it's not apart from the Word. But it means this. Look, the A. Admit you can do nothing without God. You know who said that? Jesus. Apart from me, you can do a little bit of stuff. Apart from me. It doesn't mean you can't brush your teeth without Jesus. Come on. Kingdom accomplishments cannot happen. Except through Him. So in and of myself, I admit I can do nothing without God. And whatever it is you're struggling with, you can't overcome it or clean it up on your own. You need to bring Him into the picture. So this is just something you confess to God. So the A means admit. Admit you can do nothing without God. Second part, P. And I'm sorry it doesn't spell a word, but He made one. Aptat. P, pray for help. You see that all through the Psalms. Search me, know me, try me, change me, make me walk in the truth that I know. Pray for help, pray for empowering. Some of us have quit praying and we wonder why we're struggling so bad. Maybe we're legalistic about praying and think if we pray, if I just pray for an hour, he'll bless me. Well, if that's why you're praying, it's going to be a really hard, difficult hour. Because you're trying to earn it. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with praying for an hour, but it's not a standard. But some of us have just kind of thrown in the towel on prayer. And about all we'll do in the morning when we get up, maybe not even in the morning, is God watch over me, bless me, protect me, make, make the children good, and let the car not break down. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray for help. Open up before God. Third, the T, trust a specific promise. And he put Second Chronicles twenty twenty. You can put trust a specific promise though. I mean, at Luke eleven thirteen. It's the Father's pleasure. The Father gives the Spirit to those who ask Him. It doesn't mean the indwelling. We have it, the filling. So admit you can do nothing. Pray for help and trust God's word. Trust a promise and then act. Philippians two twelve. Whatever it is you're seeking to God's help with, you 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 step out and you attack it. And from when I'm telling you I do this every Sunday, that act is this. God, I can do nothing apart from you. I cannot convert a soul. I cannot grow a soul. Words will fall to the floor. So please empower and help me to preach the word. I trust that he, you know, it's his will. His word won't return to him void. He's called me to do this. And then I get up here and preach. Even knees knocking sometimes. Yeah, that happens. I, I get up here sometimes and I don't feel like I'm finished preparing. It just don't seem like it's coming together. But I know he, he'll use it. Not for laziness, but just sometimes, Corey can tell you, sometimes it just never feels like the work is done, does it? Some, some weeks he'll baby you and just dump it in your lap. Most weeks are not like that. And then last, thank God for his provision and goodness. So you trust, you act, and then you thank him for enabling you and empowering you. But notice this is, you have to seek and trust. And act. See, we want to wait till we feel empowered before we'll do it. And that's not the path. Train your feelings to follow, not lead. 
That's Aptat. I hope that helps you. Slide if you want it. If you need that more, let me know. But we saw in the disciples in Ephesus, we saw in Apollos' life, there was a, a good journey going on, but there was, it, was, it was stopping in the middle. They needed more information. So Aquila and Priscilla explained more adequately to Apollos, God empowered and used him. Paul explains more adequately to the disciples in Ephesus and we see God empowering them and we know he's, he's going to use them. Early in my Christian life, I spent a lot of time praying for the power of the Spirit, but not trusting and depending. I was, my, my acronym was just one B, just one letter. I was begging. That's all I was doing. I was begging and doubting. There's another one. I was begging and doubting and falling on my face in a bad way. I was acting like I didn't have the Spirit. I was looking for a Pentecost experience which God hadn't promised to assure me. All the while, I should have been believing God's Word, acting in faith, trusting that the Spirit was there and would empower me to accomplish God's purpose. So I end with what I wanted you to take away. Don't wait for a new Pentecost. I would say believe God's word. Walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. And watch Him work. He promises to do so. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that Your salvation is a full and a free salvation. That you gave us to your Son before the foundation of the world. The Son came to accomplish our redemption. The Spirit brings us to faith, applying that redemption to us through the preaching of the gospel. That when we come to faith in Jesus, we have the Spirit. And as we trust you and depend upon you, the Spirit is, is continually controlling and bearing fruit in our lives. And Lord, we want it to be perfect, but it's not. We're growing in grace. We don't have it all figured out yet. And you're working in us to make us like Jesus. But I pray simply for one thing flowing out of this. More awareness of the Holy Spirit. More praying and trusting for the power of the Spirit. And more purposing to act out of love for you in obedience to you. And trust the Spirit to empower us. Whether that's teaching or preaching or or, or witnessing, or raising kids, or, or you name it. We, anything of kingdom value, we need you to work in and through us. Help us to obey out of love, and to know that you are working in us the things that please you. That all of our salvation is a work of grace, and that it is a full salvation. So, Father, we thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Help us to grow in grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.